Well, good morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, what a, what a privilege, what a joy to stand forgiven in your presence, to experience your grace and your mercy and your great loving kindness, to worship as your body, to know, O oh Lord God, that our redemption is secure as is our salvation. What a joy to know and what assurance there is, Father, in trusting you wholly and fully, knowing that those whom you have drawn to yourself through Jesus Christ, you will in no way cast out. Father, you forgave us all of our sin. You continue to forgive us our sin because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so that even when we stumble, even when we fall, there is this assurance of your forgiveness, of your mercy, and of your grace. Father, we live in a world in which uh, grace and mercy and loving kindness seem in short supply. We are reminded and we are mindful, Lord, of the violence occurring in Israel, and we are thankful uh, for the safe return of, of John and, and his family from Israel. We pray, Lord God, for the continued protection upon the, all life there in the Middle East and in Israel. We ask for a, a swift end to the conflict there and for a lasting peace to be established through the, the knowledge of the Prince of Peace. We know, Lord, that uh, you yourself told us that there would be wars and rumors of wars, but they are still hard to accept, still hard to comprehend that human beings can stand on one side and another, and another on the other and try to kill one another. Father, these things to us don't make sense. And so we, we look to you, O oh Lord God, for assistance in helping to understand them. And even in our own country, Lord God, as there is such deep division, politically, racially, ethnically, Father, we ask for unity. And more than that, Father, we pray that we ourselves, in the areas of influence and responsibility that you have given to us, we cannot change, Lord God, the whole world, but perhaps with your help, we can change, we can make a difference where you have placed us. And that is our aim and our goal, to serve you where you have called us and where you have placed us. Father, Jill and I are, are grateful that for the last three years you have called and placed us here and that by your grace we have been loved and accepted and affirmed and encouraged. We have been challenged as well, Lord God. And we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to do the same in return, encouraging and exhorting our brothers and sisters here to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We do not take this responsibility lightly, Lord God, not only in serving as pastor, but also serving as your disciples. It is our responsibility, Lord, all of us together, to grow in that grace, to grow in that knowledge, to be salt and light, and to take not for granted the things that you have given to us, the blessings, O oh Lord God, that you lavished upon us, and continue to do so in, your na in the name of your Son. And so help us, Lord God, to continue to pursue you with a whole heart, all of our strength, all of our might, asking, Father, for your strength and the leadership and the guidance of your Holy Spirit through your word every step of the way. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would speak to us now from your word, that you would so encourage us that we would be inspired by your word and by your spirit to live for Christ with courage and with joy. 
and that in all that we do, uh, Christ is glorified and will be glorified until that day when we stand in your presence and we'll glorify him with one heart, mind, soul, and voice. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is, uh, this is an auspicious day. And uh, I'm reminded of an old story that uh, an old pastor friend of mine uh, told when he was uh, leaving uh, his uh, church after uh, what was a relatively short stay. And he told a story about a, a traveler long, long, long ago who met a, an old man. Um, and uh, the old man told him that um, he had the, the, the power to, to transform um, he had this little magic bag, and if the traveler put stones into this bag, they would, the stones would turn into precious gems and, of every size and shape. And the, the traveler, stunned at this, not really believing it, said, well, you know, couldn't hurt to put a few extra stones in his bag. You never know. And so he, he gathered, you know, a couple of dozen stones, put them in his bag, and went on his way. And then when he got to the place where he was traveling, he opened the bag, and lo and behold, uh, those stones had turned to gems, rubies and, and emeralds and garnet and diamonds. And the fellow thought to himself, well, I'm, I'm glad for the number of stones I put in my bag, but I sure wish I had more. And so I'm glad for the time that we've had Wish we had more, but obviously the Lord has other things in mind. And so as uh, this is um, my last sermon here as your pastor, I will try my best to finish well, uh, finish on time, and to keep my tears to a minimum. But I make no promises. So just in reflecting on this text and, and on the past 38 years, uh, it's been my privilege to serve and to lead six churches. And I did not intend uh, to be a journeyman pastor, but that is and has been my calling. I have served churches in Massachusetts twice, North Dakota, Ohio, Canada, and now New Jersey. And so this past, and now having served that many churches, those of you in the search committee know this. Uh, when, you, when you serve that many churches, that's as many, if not more, pastoral search committee questionnaires I have answered. It is innumerable. I think it's well into the triple digits. So this past week, just out of curiosity, I went through my files. Yes, I did save them. And uh, I reviewed some of them and some of the questions and some of the answers. And I want to share with you just one answer to one question that is a recurring one in every questionnaire that I've answered. And the question is simply this. What do you believe is the biblical role of the pastor? And uh, I was a young, much younger man when I wrote this answer. And in my brilliance and naivete, I wrote... I believe the biblical role of the pastor is to lead well by loving God and loving people. The pastor will demonstrate his love for God by spreading a passion for God's word through the sound exposition of Scripture. He will demonstrate his love for people by caring for them, encouraging, exhorting, and if necessary, exercising church discipline to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not bad. 
that church didn't call me. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, I think it was John Piper who said that it, the greatest gift that a pastor can give to his congregation is his passion to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I like that. I happen to like John Piper. I happen to appreciate the things that he's written. There's another quote from Piper that I would like to share with you and use it as a way of moving forward into the text this morning from 2 Peter. Piper writes this, I exist to magnify Jesus Christ. That is, I am on this planet for one ultimate reason, to do whatever I can to make Jesus Christ known and treasured, a knowing and a treasuring that accords with his infinite beauty and immeasurable worth. So my goal as your pastor, and I would say the goal of all the pastors who serve here, has indeed been to magnify Jesus Christ and to do whatever we can to encourage, exhort, and motivate all of us to magnify Jesus so that together we can make him known and treasured a knowing and a treasuring that accords with his infinite beauty and immeasurable worth, to hold before you the glory of Christ and to display him in all of his beauty and in all of his majesty, not just in the preaching of his word, but in the singing of his praise and in the prayers of adoration and of confession and in the study of his word. That is our goal. That is our aim. And in fact, I would say the single motivating factor that has been driving my ministry and the vision for my ministry for these last 38 years has been exactly that, to encourage, exhort, and motivate people to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, because that's the verse I want to focus on. The larger context of that chapter uh, the text that we read is dealing with Peter's instructions with regard to the end of time and what kind of people ought we to be in light of the fact that God is going to return, Christ is going to come back, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to be living lives of holiness and godliness. And so this is why he ends that letter with this exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And before we move any further into the text, there are some things that you need to know about the grammar of that verse, which will help um, increase our understanding of it as well. The, the first thing we need to know is that there's no definite article in the Greek translation of that verse. The second thing to know is that the command to grow is in the second person plural, present indicative active. In other words, what that means is this. The verse would literally, literally, literally read as follows. Keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So this command to grow isn't just a one-time thing. It is a continual lifelong pursuit of knowing the grace, the majesty, the glory, the mercy, the loving kindness, the beauty, the worth, the immeasurable worth and treasuring of Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense in which Peter says the way that you're going to continue to live lives of godliness and holiness, the way that we're going to continue to supplement our faith with knowledge and virtue and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love is by continuing to have a thirst and appetite and a hunger for the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And last but not least, the thing that's interesting about verse 18 is that in technical terms, it forms what scholars would call an inclusio, with 
chapter 1, verse 5. Inclusio, it's just a, a Latin term, a technical term for a verse that acts like a bookend at the end of a psalm or the end of a letter. The first bookend is in chapter 1, verse 5. We study that, and Peter commands his readers to make every effort to supplement their faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then at the end of the letter, the second bookend is in verse 18. Keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to continue to make every effort to supplement your faith that's how we're going to make every effort to make our calling and election sure is by continuing to behold and to dive deeply through prayer and study and fellowship with like-minded believers of the immeasurable worth, the glory, and the majesty of Christ. And so that really is going to be the, the big idea for this message. This is my exhortation. This is my encouragement to all of us. For even though I'm moving on into a different form of ministry, I am still, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, no longer a pastor, and functioning in that role, but as a disciple, I still have to continue to grow in knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want a big idea for this message, it's simply this. Make every effort to keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we un understand or try to understand verse 18, there are some questions we can ask about that big idea. What does Peter mean by that? What does he mean by keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do we keep growing in that grace and knowledge? And then why? So let's, let's take them one at a time. What does Peter mean when he says, keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And note Peter's title that he confers on Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has started the letter the same way, so he is affirming the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. He is not simply just a carpenter from Nazareth who said and taught some amazing things and some challenging things, truthful things that ended up getting him crucified, but he was crucified not simply because he said those things. He was crucified because as a son of God, he came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Peter is putting those two titles together. He is Lord and Savior. So that to confess him as one is to confess him as the other. There is no separation between the two. His identity is a unit. If you confess Christ as Lord, you are also confessing him as Savior. There is no division between those two titles. And so in saying that, Peter is, is again holding up for us the majesty, the glory, the immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ. He is God and man together. And then a couple of things need to be mentioned at this point as well. When Peter gives this command, keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he does what every pastor does when they stand up to preach or teach, whether it's at a Bible study or on a Sunday morning. And Peter makes a couple of assumptions. And they're important assumptions. They're assumptions I make every Sunday. He assumes his readers are Christians. He assumes his hearers are those who have made that profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that on a, a weekly basis, week in and we out, week in and we out, boy, I can't even blame the microphone because it's right there. Week in and week out, my mouth is suddenly dry. I'm, I'm good. I don't need water. I'm good. 
I know that, you know, week in and week out, there may be guests who come in who maybe don't know Jesus, have not made that confession. But by and large, when I look out uh, among you every Sunday, I, most of you, I'm going to assume, have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He assumes that they have experienced God's undeserved favor through having come to faith in Jesus Christ. He also assumes that having come to faith in Jesus Christ, they want to keep growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they, in essence, share his same passion. Remember, Peter writes as a man who boasted that he would die rather than deny Jesus. He ends up denying Jesus three times and is restored to ministry by Christ. So Peter is a man who, who has been humbled, who's been brought low by his, this, this proud boast. But he knows what grace feels like to have let Christ down. And one of the more poignant uh, passages in all of Scripture is in the Gospel of Luke when Peter denies Jesus for the third time in Luke's Gospel. Not only does the rooster crow, but, Jesus, but Luke tells us Jesus turns and looks directly at Peter. And just imagine that moment. When we sin, we disobey God. There isn't that kind of ecstatic or electric moment. We may feel a pang of conviction when a brother or sister or a child or a spouse catches us or brings us up short to that moment. But to imagine at the moment that you do the very thing you said you would not do, and Jesus looks at you, not with hate, <laughs> but with sorrow and with a knowing pity. And then the experience, the exhilaration of being forgiven by Christ at the end of John's gospel when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks him. And then Peter acknowledges, Lord, you know all things. The third time he says, you know all things. You know that I love you. And at that point... That's when Jesus gives Peter the commission, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So we fall, we stumble in many ways. And we make that confession of sin, and Christ then asks us, do you love me? Well, you must love him if you confess your sin to him. You must love him if you are panged with conviction at having disappointed him about disobedience obeying him. And at that moment when you feel completely worthless as a disciple, Jesus says, go love your child. Go love your spouse. Feed your neighbor. I still have work for you to do. That there is no sin that you can now commit that will cause me to turn my back on you and forsake you. I pay too high a price to secure your love, your service, your devotion. So having been forgiven, that's how we grow in the grace and knowledge, just marveling at the depth of Christ's forgiveness, marveling the way the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter is making this assumption about his readers, and he's making the Bible is making the same assumption about you and I this morning, that if you're here and you have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and worship and adore him as Lord and Savior, the assumption I'm making, the assumption that our pastors are making here is that you want to grow in that grace. You want to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he continues to do through his spirit, through his word, through his church, through his people. So based on these assumptions, that his readers are Christians, that his readers want to grow, when Peter says, keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his basic command is, be a Christian. Be a Christ follower. Serve him, love him, adore him. Tell others about him. The way that Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount, so let your light shine before men so that when they see your good works, they will glorify our God and Father on the day of his visitation. It's the same thing Peter says in his first letter, to live and to maintain such honorable lives among those who don't believe so that they will glorify God when he comes. And hopefully they will glorify God before that by themselves confessing and professing faith. Because Christians who love Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we read from Deuteronomy, they will make every effort to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will make every effort to be diligent to make their calling and election sure by studying his word, by spending time with his people, by acknowledging and confessing when they sin, and then receiving the assurance of God's forgiveness, and then moving on. And this ability to, to know, to grow in this is important, because I was uh, listening to a message by uh, one of my uh, former professors, a theology professor, David Wells. Uh, Wells has written a series of books on the church and on the state of uh, evangelical Christianity in the U.S., and he shared this amazing statistic. I don't know how old the statistic is, but I think it, whether it's uh, new or old, I think it's, it rings true. It certainly has in my experience that there are about 45% of the U.S. population claim to be born-again Christians. That's significant. However, the bad news is only 9% claim to know anything about Christian teaching, doctrine, or theology. 45% claim to be born again, 9%. Now again, I don't know how accurate those percentages are, but I think they come pretty close to the truth. So there's a, there's a need for us to be rooted and grounded in things like Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, Christian theology, particularly in the context of 2 Peter, because we, we didn't spend any time in 2 Peter 2, but in 2 Peter 2, he is going after false teachers. And he is encouraging his readers and us to pay attention to what is being taught, not only in pulpits, but what you see on the internet and what you read uh, in books and things like that, popular uh, preachers and teachers, because some of them may bear the name of Christ, but there is no relation between that and the thing that they teach. So Peter says the only way you can know the difference is to keep on growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you think about it, you know, we expect a math teacher, 
when we send our, our kids to, to school, or we ourselves, right, to educate them, we expect a math teacher to know something about math. I mean, I trust my accountant to do my taxes because my accountant, I trust her to keep up to date with all of the current tax laws that per pertain to ministers. Right? You expect someone who bears a particular title to be able to have some expertise in that area. You go to a lawyer because they know the law. You go to a doctor because they know medicine. They know how to treat the human body. So Peter wants us to be Christians. If that's the name that we have, if that's the title we have taken by virtue of our faith in Christ, live it. And the way that one way we can live it is by that growth, that appetite. When you think about it, it's, it's this ability to, to continue to develop a relationship and an intimacy with Jesus. So how do you do that? If that's the premise, right, if, if the idea of, of growing is the premise, how do you keep growing uh, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, Peter's been telling us all throughout the letter, and I've been saying the same things. You make every effort to add to your faith by practicing what Jesus preaches. You go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You make every effort to make your calling and election sure. How do you do that? You read the scripture. You ask questions of those uh, maybe who have studied the scripture, questions you need answers to. And you make every effort to study, understand, and apply scripture. That's really the whole heart and soul of 2 Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Keep, keep working at that. Make your calling and election sure. Participate in the, in the sacraments of the church. Participate in covenant membership in the church. Because the, the thing that the enemy loves to do is to call into question, right? Particularly if you have fallen greatly. Well, a Christian wouldn't do that or a Christian wouldn't think that. When the fact is, yes, we do, because we're still struggling to overcome the vestige of the sin that God has redeemed us from. That's why it's called growth <laughs> in sanctification. That's why it's called the pursuit of holiness. Yes, we are holy, but we are to grow in that. When you enter into any kind of relationship, whether it's a friendship a marital relationship, a business relationship where you go to school, there is the expectation that you will do whatever is necessary to expand and grow in your knowledge of the particular subject or area of expertise or person with whom you are related. You are expected to grow in it, and it's your delight to do that. And that really is, brings us to the third, the third point. So yeah, moving quickly here, this is pretty good. So the, the, my third and last question to ask is, why then must we keep on growing? If that's, the, if that's the what, if that's what he means, be a Christian, and we do that by continuing to add to our faith the things that God has given to us, all things necessary for life and godliness, then why do we do that? Why, do we, why must we keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And there are three simple things, three basic reasons. The first is protection against erroneous and heretical teaching and doctrine. I've hinted at this already, because we know we are prepared, at least intellectually, if not emotionally, but at least intellectually, we understand that the church is going to face persecution from outside, that the, 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 in general, the culture is going to be hostile to the truth of the gospel. 
People don't like to be told that there is such a thing as absolute truth. They don't like to be told that they are sinners in need of salvation. They don't like to be told that there's someone who died for their sin. I'd, I'll pay for my own sin, thank you very much. That seems to be the attitude of the world. However, if you go through and you read church history, read the New Testament, you will also discover that some of the greatest threats to the gospel do not come from outside the church, but come from inside the church. You think of cults that have arisen in the church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, to some extent Mormons, Unification Church. All of these grew out of uh, an erroneous and heretical teaching. It is interesting to me that when Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, after weeping with them because they realize this is the last time they're going to see him, I, don't, I hope that's not the issue here, Paul gives them this charge. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And then this is the part that must have really hit home with them. I know, says Paul, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I mean, Jesus himself said the same thing. And so there is this, this uh, necessity for people who know Jesus to be able to become so familiar with Jesus, so familiar and knowledgeable of his teachings, that they can immediately recognize something that is not right. Some teaching that says, it sounds truthful, but I'm not sure about that. An old uh, mentor of mine used to tell me that Satan will tell 99% of the truth to float 1% of a lie. If, it's some, if it sounds too good to be true, the old saying goes, it likely is, unless it comes directly from the mouth of Christ. So there is this need to protect the, the integrity of the gospel because in our desire to reach our community with the gospel, we must be careful to avoid twisting the gospel so that it conforms to culture and becomes more relevant so that people will believe it. Because the truth is otherwise. The gospel does not need updating. Right? It's the gospel 1.0. That's it. One of, the, one of the frustrations I had when I used to use a PC, those of you who know or used to use Windows, every other day there was an update. And you'd sit there, this is back in the old days when you had the dial-up internet, and you'd wait three or four hours while the little wheel went around. The gospel is not like that. It needs no updating because it is always relevant. It is eternally relevant because it is an eternal word. I like what C.S. Lewis said about that. He, Lewis said that anything, right, he said all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. We are never, we are never more relevant 
as Christians than when we are preaching an eternal gospel. So don't compromise on that. There is something refreshing and emboldening when the Spirit comes upon you and you stand for truth and you say boldly and compassionately, this is what the truth is. This is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do, do you think of Peter and James standing before the Jewish council in Acts when they command them, they forbid them to preach anymore in the name of this man. And then Peter, this, in their mind, this uneducated fisherman who didn't go to rabbinical school, but he was certainly shrewd enough and smart enough to be a businessman, stands up and says, look, I, and I, think, like, I like to think of Peter like with a Brooklyn, look, fellas, whether it's right in your eyes or not, for us to obey you or God, you decide. But so far as I'm concerned, I can't stop talking about this guy, Jesus. There's that sense of earthiness and that boldness. Jesus said to his disciples, when that moment comes and you're called to testify, don't be concerned about what you'll say because I will give you the words. Now, that presupposes that you have been swimming in the gospel already. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, you can walk in without having studied and hope to ace the exam or even pass it. In order for you to have an answer to those who challenge the authority, the truthfulness, the veracity of the gospel, you have to know the gospel. More than that, you need to know the Jesus of the gospel. And it's not a matter of their truth and your truth. It's a matter of the truth. Because if you know who Jesus is and if you have been swimming in his word, if you've been soaking it up, the moment that you are squeezed out of your very pores, out of your very being, Jesus is going to emerge. And that becomes an undeniable and a lovely thing. So protection against erroneous teaching and, and heretical doctrine. The second one is it promotes the health of the church. Look, if the greatest gift a pastor can give to his church is a passion for God and his glory, then the greatest gift a church can give to its pastors is their own passion for God's glory. As well as their passion to keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about it, this kind of growth that Peter's talking about, it's an act of worship. In fact, it's an act of love. I may have used the illustration here before, and it may sound rather pedestrian, but just imagine on the day that Jill and I were married in July of 1981, you know, we take vows, and after you know, I, we say the I do's, I shake Jill's hand, well, I'll see you in a few weeks. You would say, wait a minute, you just, that's not how this works. But we seem to have the same approach with Jesus. Well, thank you for saving me. When I need you, I'll call you. There's a growth that has to take place. There's an intimacy that needs to be developed. And the only way you develop that intimacy is by doing the hard work of growing in a relationship. Of, of rubbing elbows, of being uncomfortable with one another. Particularly being uncomfortable in God's presence. The hardest thing sometimes for me to do when I pray is to be quiet. Try sometimes. Just try being silent. It's hard. 
the mind begins to wander, begins to fill with many thoughts. You feel like you need to say something and, and you just need to close everything out. Just be quiet. There's, a, there's an opportunity to grow in that moment. Or even to confess, to humbly confess before God, I'm sorry. Or to weep in his presence. Such a manly thing to do in God's presence is to weep in his presence. When you behold his glory and you see his majesty. Tears are very cleansing. Tears are, are a powerful way that God communicates to us. When, uh, when Jill and I were in Bible school together, uh, one of our Bible school teachers was Jim Cimbala in Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he had just started, this is back in the uh, late 70s, he had just started um, at the church there in Brooklyn. And he would talk about the prayer meetings on Tuesday nights that I think are still going on. Um, and Cimbala would say to us, he said, you know, the worship is great, the singing is powerful. He says, yeah, I do an okay job preaching. I know that the Spirit is moving by how many people are crying, by the tears that are shed, tears of repentance, tears of joy, tears of just absolute adoration. And so I think a way of developing that, that, that promotes a healthy church, you get a congregation that is just so in love with the glory and the majesty and the person of Christ, it's, it's immeasurable. It's, a, it, it's hard to quantify how encouraging and edifying that is to, to uh, the pastors of a church. Um, that act of worship. And then the last thing uh, is that it produces what I call prudence in prosperity and patience in adversity. Uh, that's not a line unique to me. It actually comes from the founder of Huntington Bank. Which is very sound fiscal policy when you think about it, right? You kind of wish the guys in D.C. would figure that out, right? Prudence in prosperity, patience in adversity. The gospel gives us perspective, in other words. Because the more we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, the more fruit we bear for his sake and for the glory of his kingdom. And then conversely... The more we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, the more we remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33. The night that he's betrayed, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, going back to John 14 and following. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, he says, you will have tribulation. But take heart. And I could just, at this moment, I could just sort of see this little wisp of a smile in Jesus' face. In this world, you will have tribulation. And the disciples, you're the king of kings. You're going to restore the throne to Israel. In this world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Prudence in prosperity. Bearing fruit with thankfulness and joy. But then patience in adversity. Because Jesus said, you know, hard days will come. And according to the great theologian Bruce Springsteen, there are better days. Right? He's from Jersey. I had to slip that in. <laughs> Taylor Swift one week, Springsteen the next. So just remember that. Protection against bad teaching, promoting the health of the church, 
promoting your own spiritual health, the health of your family. Children need to see their parents weeping. They need to see their parents rejoicing. They need to hear their parents humbly confess. They need to see their parents reading the Word. And, and parents, uh, children, parents are overjoyed when you're reading the Word, when you're asking tough questions. You know, my kids used to ask, Dad, do worms burp? I have no idea. Promoting the health of the church and then prudence in prosperity, patience in adversity. And then just to, to sum it up, uh, just this uh, extended quote from Richard Baxter. And you just knew I had to include a quote from the Puritans. Just had to do that. Baxter wrote a, a multi-volume work called The Christian Directory. And he writes this, and it, it's very appropriate for First Peter. Uh, Baxter writes, Child of God, be sure there are no secret reservations in your heart for the world and the flesh. You may not divide your heart between God and the things below. Understand, I'm speaking this to myself as well. You may not divide your heart between God and the things below. The hypocrite gives God what the flesh can spare. If the devil cannot keep you from seeking reformation, he will seek to deceive you with a superficial change and half reformation. By a partial change, he can persuade you that you are truly renewed and sanctified so you will advance no further. When you think you can divide half between God and half between the world, and secure both your fleshly interests of pleasure and prosperity and your salvation, you are seeking to serve God and mammon. This is the true character of a self-deceived hypocrite. Consider what abundant mercies you have to sweeten your present life and make your burdens easy. And here I think of what Peter says at the beginning of his letter. God has given us everything, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Consider what abundant mercies you have to sweeten your present life and to make your burdens easy. You have all the blessings of this life and the promise of everlasting joy. What an abundance of mercy you have in your bodies, estates, friends, names, and souls. What promises and experiences to refresh you. What freedom of access to God, a Christ and heaven to rejoice in. Shall a stony or a dirty way discourage you more than these shall comfort you? Your work will grow easier and sweeter to you as your skill and strength increase. Your enemies are as grasshoppers before you. The power of the Almighty is engaged by love and promise for your help. Do you pretend to trust in God and yet fear the insults of man? Well then, my friends, he writes... Remember the words of Isaiah 51, 7 and 8. Do not be afraid of the insults of men. Don't be discouraged because of their abuse. For a moth will eat away at them like clothes. A clothes moth will devour them like wool. But the vindication I provide will be permanent. Oh, the deliverance I give will last. Oh, child of God, remember this. We strive for unspeakable glory, and nothing shall seem too difficult or suffering too great. When um, many of you know, I'm, I, I've, I've said this, you know, I'm, I'm going to transition from pastoral ministry to hospice ministry. 
One of the reasons I'm doing it is because of, of the care that my father and mother received when they were dying from cancer. My mother uh, was the, 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 <clears throat> the second of my parents to die, and I was, my brother and I were with her as she, uh, as she entered into eternity. Uh, I remember a conversation with my mom. I, I spent some time with her, went down on a, flew down on a Friday night, and I was reading some scripture to her, and, and mom was, was just sort of near, near comatose at the moment, but she was still responsive. So I remember, I think I read Romans 8, you know, and First Corinthians 15, all these things about the promise and overcoming and all of that. And when I finished, my, my, mom, my mom said, you know, and she thanked me, and uh, she said, you know, I think your dad and I, we did a pretty good job raising you two boys. You know, your brother's a doctor, and uh, he has a you know, wonderful family, and uh, you and Jill, you know, you have Matthew, and you're a pastor. And I nodded, and there was a, just like a few seconds of silence, and then this was my mother's sense of humor. And she said, you know, and if we made any mistakes, uh, you're just going to have to work them out on your own. I'm sorry. So in these past three years, I have tried my best to love God and to love you. And if I've made any mistakes, the good news is you're not on your own. You have pastors. You have one another. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you work them all out. Because we strive for unspeakable glory. And nothing should seem too difficult or sufferings too great for that. You think about that. Let's pray.